I'm a bit of a sucker for drone footage. And I just love those nature flyover shots. It's just so different to what you get to see from the ground. I mean, I love being down on the ground doing bushwalks. I love seeing God's amazing creation up close. But there is just something awesome, something great to the big picture flyover where you get to see how it all fits together. So this morning is a bit of a drone flyover, not the bushwalk. Usually in the EU, say at our weekly public meetings, we dig down into one passage, we pull apart the verses, see how it all fits together up close. This morning I'm going to try to do something different. I don't know if it's going to work, we'll try it. We're looking at the whole of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That's why I've printed the whole of the letter there in your booklet from pages 39 to 46. We're not going to look at everything up close, that's not the point. We're going to do the flyover, see a little bit about how all of Paul's letter fits together. Now at some points, like on a good drone flight, we'll pause and we'll hover and we'll circle around particular bits to get a closer view. And particularly, we're going to focus on some of the earlier parts of the letter because that, I think, sets up understanding the rest. But at other points, we're really just going to rocket past, especially bits later in the letter, and including some bits that we've already looked at, like the section uh, in chapter 5 that we looked at yesterday when we talked about how Jesus transforms our family life. And we're going to trace a particular path through the letter, like following a river through a landscape. In fact, we're going to follow two themes that are in parallel and they weave together through the letter. Those themes are the church and power. The church and power. But first of all, just a recap of why we're looking at this topic today. All week we've been thinking about how Jesus is the key to our relationships and how understanding Jesus more deeply transforms all of our relationships. So Monday we saw how Jesus is the Son who secures our adoption by grace, into God's family. Then on Tuesday, we saw how Jesus is both fully God and fully human, our representative substitute who reconciles us to God and secures our fundamental relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. Yesterday, we saw how Jesus is our example of kingdom-focused love for our earthly family. And today, we'll explore our relationship with Jesus and each other as His church. And then tomorrow, we're going to expand a bit further and think about our relationship with all of creation because of Jesus. So get ready ready to scribble and underline and circle on the text of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That's why we've got it printed out for you in the book, so you can scribble all over it. You should be used to that a little bit from your manuscript discovery anyway on 1 Samuel 7 this week. And you can see some of the headings and other bits and pieces that I've put at the bottom of each page to try to help us along some guidance for us as we go. My hope is that this drone flyover will open up this letter of the Bible for you and that you might be inspired actually to go away and read it with your notes there and the headings and understand a little bit better how it all actually fits together. So let's ask our first question. Who or what is the church? Paul gives a few different metaphors for the church in his letter, but the one I want to focus on is first mentioned in chapter 1, verse 23, on page 40. So I'll have to flip around a little bit, but you've got it there, and you might like to highlight this verse. Chapter 1, verse 23, 
I'm going to start reading from verse 22 because it's one sentence. Paul writes, And God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The church is Jesus' body. Now, Paul returns to this metaphor a bit later in the letter. So, you've got, your, got it there. Flick forward to page 44, chapter 5, verse 23. Chapter 5, verse 23. Paul says there, Christ is, again, the head of the church, his body. So Jesus is the head, we are his body. That speaks of an incredibly close relationship between Jesus and us. How joined are you to your body? Quite a lot, you probably say. We are that incredibly joined to Jesus, such that we are his body. And look at what Jesus has done for his body, staying there in chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 23, he's described as saviour of the body. Down a few verses in verse 25, he loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did he do that? The next verse there, verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing the church by the washing with water through the word, that is, he's dealt with all of our sin. He's removed its stain from us. We are now set apart, holy, special to God. We're set apart by him and for him. And verse 27, Jesus presented the church to himself as a radiant church. You're not looking terribly radiant this morning. But that's just because I don't see you as Jesus sees you. You are a radiant church. Namely, keep reading the verse, without stain, that is the stain of sin, without wrinkle or any other blemish, but you are holy and blameless. And it's not just about what Jesus has done in the past at the cross for us, where he secured our holiness. Look at verses 29 and 30. Still there in chapter 5 from page 45. After all, Paul writes, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Because you are Jesus' body, Jesus takes care of us. He feeds us. He cares for us because we are his own body, just like you had breakfast this morning. Well, maybe you didn't have breakfast, but you've probably eaten something this week. You've cared for your body. That's what Jesus does for you. He cares for you, feeds you. That's what we're doing here at Annual Conference this week, feeding on his word. Now, if we could, had time, now that you sort of started to see this, this idea of the church being the body of Jesus, we could go back to the very beginning of the letter and just, I guess, flick back to chapter 1 now. Flick back to chapter 1, page 39. The whole first 14 verses are Paul just praising God for the amazing things that God has done for his people, the church. So let me read it out to you. 
And I just want you, with a pen or something like that, just notice all the things that God has done for his people, for Jesus' body. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Already we're finding out stuff about the church, right? We're God's holy people. We're the people who are faithful to him in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're recipients of grace. We're recipients of peace from God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. You're hearing all the ideas we've already talked about this week, right? In, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he's lavished on us. And on and on he goes. He just pours out all of these things that God has done for you, for me, for us. Jesus' body, the church. And time and time, right through that whole section, it's about praising God for the amazing... What is that phrase there? I just love that phrase there in verse 7 and 8. The riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. I remember many, many years ago, heard someone say, what is it to lavish somebody? In fact, I then stole this idea and I used to be a youth pastor and I was at a youth, a youth camp and I was giving some talks on Ephesians and I tried to illustrate this verse. I should have, I should have done the same thing today with someone here, but it's a, it's a little bit cruel, so maybe I shouldn't do it. But I tried to illustrate, what is it to lavish something? When have you ever lavished something? I mean... We're, so, we're all pretty much so stingy. We don't lavish anything on anyone, right? But to lavish, I mean, like, so I got a youth group kit up. I got them sort of in front of me, and I, I dropped a few waters from, a, from a, a bowl that I have of water, and I just dropped a few drops of water on them. That's not lavishing, is it? That's not lavishing. I didn't tell them, I didn't explain as I went along like I'm doing to you, right? I just, and then I got another kit up, and you know, I poured a little bit of water on them. Ooh, poured water on his head. Ooh. Right? And then we got somebody up, and yeah, we had a big bucket <laughs> full of water. And just It'd be a bit cruel to do it up here at Katoomba at this particular season when it'd be pretty wet. But that's what lavishing is, right? He, he, he sprinkled a tiny bit of grace on you. No! He gave you just the amount of grace that you needed to survive. No. What did God do? He lavished it on you. He became this and did that for me. He lavished his grace on us. That's who we are. We're Jesus' body, the church, recipients of his lavish grace. Amen.
Now, I want to note two things, though, that I've skipped over. Two things that I think are going to be helpful for us. First is this. The church of followers of Jesus is made up of two distinct but now united groups. Two groups, distinct but now united. They are those who believe in Jesus from a Jewish background and there are those who believe in Jesus from a Gentile background. And you can see this explicitly in this letter. It comes up quite a lot, so I need to point it out to you. You need to, though, pay attention to, I think they're called the personal pronouns. I can't actually remember. It's the I, you, we, us language. Are they personal pronouns? Yeah, okay, that'll do. Okay, right. Have a look at chapter 1, there on page 39, verses 11 to 14. Notice the personal pronouns, the we, I, you, us language, right? Paul writes, verse 11, In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. The we and the you and the our there are really important. Who's the we? Well, if you you look there in verse 12, it's clear that the we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, Paul's not talking necessarily just about himself. I think he's talking about Jewish believers. Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah and by God's Grace, a number of those Jewish people believed in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah and they became God's new covenant people. So Paul's talking about that. We who were the first to put our hope in Christ, believers from a Jewish background. But he's writing to people in Ephesus who are not from a Jewish background. He says to them in verse 13, and you also were included in Christ. That is really surprising because these people were not from a Jewish background. If you know the Old Testament story, God chooses a special group of people to be his people, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelite nation. And if you weren't part of that crew, you missed out. You you had none of the promises of God. But now because of Jesus, that has changed. And so he can write to these Gentiles You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That's both groups together there. So you can see in those verses you've got two distinct groups, but now united together, all recipients of the Holy Spirit together. Now, this enjoys, uh, you can follow this through later in the letter that you'll see at different times. You pay attention to the pronouns. There's the you and the, there's the we, and you, you can trace that out. This is going to be a really important theme in this letter, that the Gentiles who were cut off from God now are fully members of God's people, along with the Jews who put their trust in Jesus. Now, when you're reading the New Testament, this is a really big deal. But we sort of don't treat it as much of a big deal. So I need to take a moment to try to help you realise this is existentially a big deal for you. 
Hand up if you're from a Jewish background. One. Two. Two. Three. Fantastic. Three people who by birth could be part of God's people under the old covenant. Put your hand up if you were not one of those three people. You are cut off from God. You have no hope. You are foreigners to all of God's promises. This is your reality. Until God lavishes grace on you and changes the whole story in Christ Jesus. As Gentiles, people who, have been, who were not part of the descendants by birth of Abraham, we need to understand afresh how merciful the one true living God has been to us in Christ Jesus by including us into his people. So, second thing I want to point out to you is back in chapter 1, verse 23. Go back to chapter 1, verse 23, the verse with which we started. The church, Jesus' body, is described as the fullness of Christ who fills everything in every way. That's an intriguing little phrase. The church... Jesus' body is the fullness of Christ, who fills everything in every way. Now, we saw on Tuesday, God the Son in his divine nature does still fill everything in every way. But the church, Jesus' body, is his particular fullness. Well, how are we Jesus' fullness? It's just a weird idea. Maybe you've never seen it before. It comes up a lot in this letter. Now, just as a start to try to understand that, how are we Jesus' fullness... My body is the full expression of me. It's the full presence of me in the world. We know this because we've all lived through COVID and too many hours on Zoom. You see little heads disembodied and voices. Is that the fullness of the person? Absolutely not. That's why it's the great joy to be able to meet together in the flesh, right? Together. My body is the fullness of me. Heart, soul, mind, arms, legs. And so I think what we're being told here is that the church, Jesus' body, is the full expression of him in the world. We are his embodiment in the world as we live for him, as his body. We live like him. We live for him. We speak for him. We are the fruit of his work in the world. We are the fruit of his death and resurrection. We are his body, his, the fullness of him. You see how closely tied we are as God's people to Jesus himself, that we together are his fullness. So let me now introduce you to a bit of a problem. 
as he often does in his letters, Paul then moves from a time of praising God to then a prayer for the Ephesian believers. And you can see his prayer in chapter 1, verse 15 to 19. It's a prayer for knowledge. It's a prayer for knowledge. Note, if you've got it there in front of you, have a look. It's there on page 39. It's a prayer that they would know God the Father better, verse 17. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him, that is God the Father, better. So it's a prayer for knowledge that they would know God the Father better. Then the next verse, that they would know the hope that they have in Jesus. But also then in verse 19, that they would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That last phrase is what I want to explore. What is this incomparably great power for us who believe? Because frankly, incomparably great power, that's talking about the most powerful thing that you can imagine or that, that exists. His, nothing else compares to this power. His incomparably great power for us who believe. That sounds awesome. I want to know about that power too. Suddenly, I want to pray this prayer, but I don't know what the answer is. I want to know his incomparably great power for us who believe. I want to know it, not just know about it. It would be cool to know it experientially, to know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That's what Paul is praying for them that they would know this power in their own life. So that's what we're going to explore. Now, when you read through the letter, I think it becomes clear that this power has manifested itself in two ways. So over the page, heading at the bottom, you can see, first of all, God's power is at work in resurrection recreation. Because Paul goes straight on at the top of page 40, halfway through verse 19. He says, That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the right hand in the heavenly realms. Now, that's pretty good power, right? Dead person. You got a dead person in front of you? You can yell at that person all you like. You will not raise them back to life. You can shake them, you can tend them, you can use all your hot medical skills to sort of try. But if they're dead, they're dead, right? You don't have that power. But the incomparably great power of God was seen when he raised Jesus from death to new, resurrected, glorious, eternal life. And not just raised him, seated him at his right hand in glory. That's power. Okay, that's cool. That's a great exercise of God's power to do that. But look what he goes on. And this is where the chapter numbers are super unhelpful, right? The beginning of chapter... Because what he says at the rest of chapter 2 is, that same, God's done that same power to you. Exercise that same power in you. Because look at what he says, chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to walk when you followed the ways of this world and the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, not just you Gentiles, by the way, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So this incomparably great power that's available for you who believe, that power is what raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms. And that power has already taken you and raised you to life and seated you in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Paul wants the Christians to know this power, to understand how God has exercised enormous power, that resurrection power in your life, because he's brought you from spiritual death to resurrected life. Now, I know you're sitting here like, and I'm standing here in our frail mortal bodies. These bodies will die. But in my spirit, in my soul, I am already, the Bible says, a new creation. I have already been raised to life with Christ. And I won't die. Oh, my body will die, but I won't die. I will continue with Christ and he will grant me a new resurrection body like he did for Jesus himself. That's your future too. So this incomparably great power that was seen in Christ's resurrection and ascension has already taken effect in you. Why though? Why does Paul want them to know this? Why why does he want them to really get it? To have power to understand these things? I'll leave you with that question because that's where we're going to land. Why does he want them to know these things? Why does he want them to know these realities? So then he moves on. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. So, remember, remember. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves a circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember... That at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Paul is explaining to them that though they were cut off, because God has exercised this enormous power in giving them new spiritual life and seeing them with Christ in the heavenly realms, they now have been brought in to the promised people of God. Now, this is part of the Bible's much bigger story of how God is fulfilling his plans for the world, that the Gentiles have been included by faith through the work of Christ into God's people. So we're going to watch a short video, and it is short, that describes that bigger story in the Bible. It's only three minutes long. But you might want to pay close attention because there is a test at the end. The Bible is a big story, God's big story. In it, God describes how he's taking this creation, marred as it is by sin, through to a new creation where sin and its consequences are no more. 
At the center of this movement from creation to new creation is the person of Jesus. His death for sins and resurrection to new eternal life are key to establishing the new creation order. The way God moves history forward from creation through to the Lord Jesus and then to new creation is through a series of covenants, binding agreements established by God himself with us, his creatures. These covenants build upon one another and together prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. They are God's way of moving history forward toward the fulfilling of his original good intentions for his creation. One of the early covenants established by God was with Abraham. God promised to make Abraham the father of a great nation. This became the Old Testament nation of Israel. But God's intention was ultimately to bless all of his creation. So God also promised that through Abraham's descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Years later, after God rescued Abraham's descendants from slavery in Egypt, God made another covenant with the Israelites, this time under the leadership of Moses. At Mount Sinai, God gave them his law and said they would be his chosen people out of all the nations of the world. Fast forward several hundred years and God makes another covenant, this time with David, king of the Israelites. God promises that one of David's descendants would always sit on David's throne. But throughout all this time, sin was still causing havoc amongst God's people. Instead of loving God with their whole heart, God's people rejected his word and way. They turned against him. So instead of the covenant blessings God has promised, they received the punishments he warned against. The Israelites ended up in exile, kicked out of the land God had promised them. So through his prophets, God made a promise. He promised to one day establish a new covenant, one which his people would not break. Instead of turning away in sin, he would empower them with his spirit and they would keep his word and his way. They would, again, be his people and he would be their God. God's promised new covenant became a reality when Jesus arrived. In his death and resurrection, Jesus simultaneously fulfilled the old covenants and established the new covenant. Each of the successive old covenants was more and more tightly focused. The covenant with Abraham promised blessing to all the nations of the earth. The covenant with Moses focused on the nation of Israel. The covenant with David focused on the king of Israel and his descendants. And by the time we get to Jesus dying upon the cross, the focus is on him alone. But as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection, the new covenant opens up to include all those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus. As the gospel about Jesus spreads, the new covenant people of God keep growing as people hear the good news of Jesus, repent and believe. The Bible ends its great story with a vision of people from every tribe, nation and language gathered around the throne of Jesus in the new creation, fulfilling God's good creation purpose for us, his creatures. Okay, great. So I said there would be a test. And at the bottom of page 41, you can see some of the elements of the diagram from the video. Your job is to add in and label the rest of the diagram from the video. Can you remember it? So how about you work with some of the people around you to see if you can put the diagram together with all its bits. I'll give you a couple of minutes. Okay, so let me just quickly run through it. You can sort of see how you went. The Bible describes how God is moving from creation to new creation and Jesus, his death and resurrection are at the centre of that plan. But the whole plan was necessary because of sin which has affected every part of creation. So hopefully you got the dotted line is meant to be sin there. The way God moves history forward in this plan is through a series of covenants. We heard first with Abraham, then with King David, oh, sorry, Moses, then with King David, followed by the promise of the new covenant. And it's that, I didn't do the nice wavy line, that was cooler. But uh, it's the new covenant that Jesus brought in through his own death and resurrection. Now, these covenants, Old Testament covenants, resulted in the Old Testament nation of Israel 
God's old covenant people. But throughout the history of the Old Testament, God's purposes focused in until they reached, focused in on the Lord Jesus Christ. But as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection, God's purposes opened out to all people and all nations. And by his grace, people continue to move into his new covenant people and be adopted into his family through putting faith in the Lord Jesus. Well, I don't know how you went. Give yourself a mark out of 10. Be generous to yourself. And if we want to be tying this diagram into what we've just been looking at here in Ephesians, what I would do is I would label a section of it as Jesus' body, the church. Right? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about God's new covenant people through faith in Christ, founded on his death and resurrection, who have already been raised spiritually and already seated with Christ in the heavenly places in terms of our status. It's always, always helpful to know the big story of what God is doing as revealed in his word. And that is why Paul encourages the Ephesians, these Gentile believers, to remember. Remember how far God has brought you. In chapter 2, verse 12, there back in, uh, back in Ephesians, he says, You were foreigners to these covenants. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were without hope and without God in the world. But, verse 13 of chapter 2, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Look down a bit further onto the next page, verse 19. Look at the results of this. Consequently, he says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Keep going there on that text. Paul then swaps metaphors to one of building and construction. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, in whom the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling which God lives by his spirit. So you're not just members of God's people. He is building us together as his dwelling place. This, here, you, me, us together, this is where the one true living God, this is where he lives, by his spirit. Not at KCC. In us. We are his holy temple. We are the body of Christ, Christ's fullness. That is who we are. So how does this relate to his prayer about power? Well, Paul, as sometimes happens when Paul writes letters, Paul gets himself a bit distracted at this point. So chapter 3, verse 1, you can see he's building to a conclusion or building to an application. He's, he's taking us somewhere. He's laid all these pieces out. And then he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, massive distraction at this point. Surely you do know, right? You've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery that was made known to me by revelation that I've already written about to you briefly. 
In reading this, you will understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people. On and on and go. He just he suddenly gets a bit distracted. It's related. It's related, but a bit of a sidetrack. It's related because it's about this great thing that God has done by bringing Gentiles and Jews together into one body. But it's a little bit of a distraction because it's talking about his particular role in announcing that message. So have a look at chapter 3, verse 6 there on the right-hand side of page 41. He says, this mystery that's now been revealed, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, most of us here, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. That's the mystery that's now been revealed and which Paul is making known. And notice the intent, God's intent, in making this mystery known now. Verse 10 of that same chapter, still on page 41, verse 10 there, God's intent was that now... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God's intent was that through the church, his wisdom would be proclaimed to everybody. I don't think in this particular moment Paul is talking about preaching the gospel. He does that later when you get to chapter 6. I think here he's saying... The very existence of the church is how God declares to the world his wisdom. Because he has brought people from Jewish backgrounds and Gentile backgrounds all together, building them into one holy temple in which he dwells by his spirit. And that is how God declares his great wisdom to the universe. You can see there a quote I've got there from Oliver O'Donovan, the bottom of your page. He says, the church addresses the world with its being and not only with its talking. The fact that the church exists, Jesus' body, says something about God's great power in Christ to the world. And then in brackets, but only if we actually are Jesus' body are his fullness. We don't say anything to the world if we just look like the rest of the world. Okay, so Paul got himself distracted there in chapter 3, verse 1, but then he he refines himself, gets back on track. Notice this. You see how chapter 3, verse 1 started? For this reason, and then he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Notice those two things. Now, Turn over the page to chapter, well, it's the second part of chapter 3. Notice chapter 3, verse 14, top of page 42, for this reason. He repeats himself. He's back on track. For this reason. But then down in chapter 4, verse 1, a bit further down the column, as a prisoner for the Lord, which is also what he said back in chapter 3, verse 1. Some of those same phrases that he had in chapter 3, verse 1, suddenly reappear because he's got off his distraction and he's now back. He's now back on track. And in chapter 3, verse 14, he he decides to revert back to prayer. He prays for more power. And we looked at this prayer with James on Monday night. Notice two things about his prayer for power here. I'll read from verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through your spirit in your inner being 
To what end? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. How? Through faith. Sometimes I think we pray, God, I want to know more of you. Jesus, I want to, I want to know your presence more closely. And we, we, we pray it and, and think that God is going to do maybe something um, sort of miraculous and suddenly we'll have a sense of his presence or have a sense. But notice his prayer so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Faith is lived out trust. Trust that lives out daily, day by day. He's praying that Christ will dwell in their hearts through faith, through their active trusting of Christ. He wants them to have power for living for Jesus. Because that's what faith in Jesus is. It's living for Jesus. And notice the second, the second part of his prayer is, is similar lines. Verse 18, that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, to what end? That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I don't think that that is saying just so you have a great sense of God's presence and awesomeness. That's not what the fullness of God is. Remember, we saw it earlier. The church is, the body of Christ, his fullness. We live out who he is. We are the embodiment of him, his truth, his vision, his values in the world. His prayer here is that be filled with power, or sorry, that they'd have power, so they'd be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, that they would be living a holy life. So I think both those parts of that prayer there are effectively saying similar things. That you would have power so that Christ might live in your heart by faith, by your active trust. That you would have power to grasp the love of Christ so that then you would live that out. So that you would live, be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. So then how then does this prayer for power play out? That's when you get to chapter 4, verse 1, and it takes you all the way through to the end of the book. He then says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. How did I try to bring all of these threads together? The church, remember, is both Jewish and Gentile background. And that's difficult for Jewish and Gentile people to live together because the Jews had all sorts of... Um, Old, the Old Testament law that they wanted to keep and they, they felt strongly about. Gentile believers who had, didn't have that background in the Old Testament law felt free to eat anything you know, un, under God's kindness. How do, how do these people live together now as one body? That was, that, that's tricky. What's more, people coming from a Gentile background, they lacked the blessing of God's Old Testament law and so they were involved in all sorts of sinful practices. So for them coming to Christ, they've got to work out how to get rid of all of those old sinful practices. And that's hard work because it's easy to stay in those old sinful habits. So Paul's prayer here is that actually they would know, they would have power to grasp how God has been working in their life. And God's power is at work in their life in two ways. One, by bringing them to faith, resurrecting them spiritually and seating them with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's the first way, first exercise of God's power. But the second way 
is now that they can live for Jesus. God's power shows in these two ways, the new life they have in Christ and then living for Jesus. And so from chapter 4, verse 1, there's lots and lots of encouragement of how they should live for Jesus. I've just got some headings there. You can see, first of all, from chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, that they walk worthy of the Lord Jesus in unity. He says there in verse 3 of chapter 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That is, you are one. (laughs) You are one and so now you're now to live as one, Jew or Gentile background. You're now one in Christ Jesus. Live it out. How do you do that? Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. So, the first way you walk worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ is in unity with your sisters and brothers. The second way you, use, you walk worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ is in using God's gifts. Chapter 4, verse 7 to 16. We're united in Christ Jesus, but we are also different. We have different gifts that God's given us. You can see from verse 7, but to each of us, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. He gives different gifts, though notice it's given to each. Verse 7, to each one of us, grace has been given. It's given as Christ chooses, according to verse 11. It's Christ himself who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Christ gives these gifts to each, and we're to use these gifts to build his body, to reach his fullness. Have a look at chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. The purpose of these gifts that God has given through Christ is that we might reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So God's purpose is to build the body of Christ, to build it both upward to maturity, that we would attain to his fullness, but also to build the body outward in evangelism, as we heard on Tuesday night. You can see there that one of the gifts that Christ gives in verse 11 are the evangelists. The evangelists are building the body of Christ outward. When your Bible says to build up, that's probably an unhelpful translation. The word up is not actually there. It's just build, so that the body of Christ may be built, both upward and outward. I think it was great that we actually were able to spend Tuesday night thinking about evangelism and remembering the great things that God has done for us in Christ Jesus and how that is good news to be shared. Because I think it's easy these days to think that evangelism is, is a little bit distasteful. There's something like us imposing a view on others who don't want to hear it. We've got to get rid of that way of thinking. In addition to the fact that judgment is coming and they will answer before the living God for how they've lived their life, and we, want to, we, we know the answer that the only salvation is in Christ. So, in addition to our love for them and concern for them as they face the coming judgment, it is also the fact 
that the church are the, are the group of people in the world who have access to the truth that is found in Jesus. And so if you are living as part of God's people in the church, this is the truest way to live. This is the best way to live, that the church is actually good. Oh, I know the church does many bad things sometimes when we, when we walk in ways of the flesh rather than walk in ways of the spirit, but the church is a good thing in the world. In fact, it would be great if the church grew such that everybody was in the church. Don't you think that would be great? Wouldn't it? Isn't that what God wants? There's a quote there on your page. The Christian claim is that life is better lived in the church because the church, according to our story, just happens to be true. The church is the only community formed around the truth, which is Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And the way the church is built up is by our, us exercising the different gifts that God has given us in love and service of one another, and we build up the body of Christ. You'll notice in the list of gifts there, the significance of word gifts, because word gifts like teaching Sunday school, like sharing the gospel with somebody, like um, leading a Bible study, like running kids' church, word gifts help God's people understand the truth, and if you don't understand the truth, you can't live the truth. You can't be the fullness of Christ without the truth. So if you have opportunities to share in word ministry to others, using word gifts that God might have given you, whether that's to children, whether it's to old people, whether it's to university students, whether it's in a city or wherever it is, use those word gifts that God has given you because that enables the body of Christ to reach the fullness intended for us. Now, when I'm talking about use, um, making use of different sort of opportunities to use your gifts, I just know that we are all faced with probably too many opportunities to serve. That's just one of the blessings, I guess, that we have. So if you turn over the page, you can see there a picture at the bottom, a diagram. It, the heading is Thinking Clearly, a Biblical Framework for Considering Gospel Needs. The reason I put this together is because I'm just, I have a lot of conversations with people over a number of years now, and people often are saying to me, oh, I've got this ministry opportunity, I've got this particular gospel need I could try to meet, but how do I choose how I should use my time? How do I choose what to do and what not to do? How do I make decisions? And out of lots of conversations over the years trying to bring God's Word to bear into those discussions, I've put together a, a bunch of sort of key truths from God's Word that I think you need to hold together to make wise decisions. So I'll lead you through it. It's going to come up on the screen here. Um, so it's a biblical framework for considering gospel needs. We're all aware of great gospel needs. Whether it's a church down the road who has no youth leaders or kids' church leaders or opportunities to serve the LRLR with Cusmin or EU Focus on campus or needs overseas, as we heard last night, there is still enormous gospel need around the whole world. So we know there's plenty of needs. And often we may have the opportunity or the potential opportunity to do something to meet that need. Now that depends, of course, it depends on three things. It depends on your suitability. Are you a suitable person to actually be meeting that need? It depends on your availability. Are you actually able to go and do it? And also your readiness, your preparedness to actually go and do it. But 
you have the opportunity. You could give yourself to fulfilling this gospel need. The opportunity is there. Well, that opportunity presents you and me with a choice, doesn't it? Are we going to pursue this opportunity or not? What are we going to do? Conundrum. Now, it's a pretty common conundrum, as I said, because the world is full of gospel needs. And the opportunity we have to do something about those needs is very high. So we have so, have so many choices to make. So my question is this, what does a gospel-shaped response to this situation with needs and opportunity, what does a gospel-shaped response look like? Well, the starting point of any gospel-shaped response to this choice, or any other, must be a heart of love. We start with our commitment to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and to love our neighbour as ourselves. That's how Jesus summarised God's consistent expectation of his saved people across the Old and New Covenants in Matthew chapter 23. And Paul echoes Jesus' teaching when he says in Romans 13, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. So our common starting point for any gospel-shaped response is our commitment to love God and to love neighbour. But still leaves the question, what does that love actually look like in practice? What are you actually going to do? Well, three things. God usually gives us freedom. God gives us freedom in Christ to how we respond to this gospel need and opportunity. Now, there's some things that we're not free to not do. We are all called to have Jesus' kingdom as our priority. No ambiguity there. We're all called to love our neighbours as ourselves. We're all called to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have in Jesus. But how that then plays out in your specific decisions about whether to take up this particular opportunity to meet this particular need, well, I don't think God has given a universal command on that one for you. My understanding from the Scriptures is that God does not lay an obligation on us, but gives us genuine freedom of choice in how we're going to pursue His kingdom with the time He's given us. You make decisions... Now, you might make them on good or bad motives, and God cares about that, and that's between you and God to work out. But in terms of the choice you make, should I go and teach Sunday school? Should I teach kids' church? Should I do youth group? My church has got needs in all three spaces, but I, I honestly don't think I can fit all three with the appropriate preparation and prayer to actually do those three. I, I can't do it. How do I choose? What do I, I think you are free. You are free to serve him. You're also free to say, actually, I've got a really heavy semester and I can't do any of those things. I think you are genuinely free. You have gospel freedom to make those decisions. A, a possible analogy is the decision to get married or not, as Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says there, if you choose to get married, that's fine. If you choose to stay single for the sake of the kingdom, even better. But that does not mean that you're sinning if you decide to get married. And we go, oh, hang on, hang on. If this is better, then surely that's sin. No, no, not at all. That's not what Paul says. You have genuine freedom in the gospel to choose to get married or not. Even though one will is better by in the, the metric of being able to do more kingdom work than the other. And I think the same is true when we're faced with gospel opportunities. Now, it will be different if God has given you a direct word on what he wants you to do with respect to that opportunity. Sometimes God does do that. 
Uh, the Apostle Paul is an example, right? He was in that situation. Jesus spoke to him directly and commanded him to go and preach to the Gentiles. For Paul, it was a matter of obligation, not a matter of freedom. But God does not promise that he will always give that sort of direction. And if God doesn't promise it, it would be foolish to wait around forever expecting him to give me a sign that he never promised he would do. Instead, he expects us to use our minds and the wisdom he's given us, plus the guidance of his scriptures, plus the wisdom of sisters and brothers in Christ around you, to make a prayerful decision and move forward. But it's not about finding the particular decision that he's planned for you. You have genuine freedom. If your motives are good, and this is a good opportunity, then you have freedom in the gospel to make your own decision. However, freedom in Christ is not the totality of the story. Remember, we're trying to think through how does the gospel itself reshape our response to this gospel need and opportunity. A key gospel principle is faithful stewardship. As God's people, we're called to be faithful stewards of all that he's entrusted to us and to use them in Jesus' name in a way that brings him glory. That applies to our skills and our gifts, our money, our possessions, our time and our energy. God has not given you those things so you can selfishly build your own best life and live in comfort and ease. Actually, that just sounds, to, to live like that sounds like Jesus' parable of the rich fool. We honour God as we use what are his gifts for him in pursuit of his purposes. And that includes the unique opportunities that we have as those who are educated, mobile, richly resourced Christians living in a financially wealthy society to do something about gospel needs around us. And we can do things to meet gospel needs that many Christians around the world can't. The opportunity you have to consider these gospel needs, that is a choice that you need to faithfully steward for God. That doesn't mean that you have to go and meet every gospel need. No, you've got genuine gospel freedom on that question. But you are not just free to live for yourself, to indulge yourself. That's not what following Jesus is about. And the third aspect of the gospel to consider is that following Jesus always looks like voluntary sacrifice. Remember Jesus' words, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves daily, take up their cross and follow me. Jesus calls us to a life of voluntary sacrifice. It's about voluntarily giving up things, good things, for the greater good of Jesus' kingdom and glory. The mature disciple of Jesus is not asking, what do I have to give up to follow Jesus? The mature disciple of Jesus is asking, what could I give up to further Jesus' kingdom, to build his body? And Jesus himself is the model of that voluntary sacrifice. When he's speaking of his own death, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord. His was a voluntary sacrifice. So you can see it's not just as simple as saying, you've got gospel freedom, do what you like, but it's also not as simple as saying, there's a gospel need, you have to go and meet it. It's about you and me living out what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of the gospel needs and gospel opportunities that we have in front of us. And we meet this choice, understanding our gospel freedom, committed to faithful stewardship and embracing voluntary sacrifice. Now, we need to have a bit of a break, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to stand and sing. We're then going to watch a very short video from two graduates who've been thinking about this framework, just to see how that's lived out, and then we're going to come and wrap up and have an interview. 
Hi everyone, uh, my name is Anna Moore. I studied education and arts at UCS, uh, finishing in 2014 when I left Sydney for Queanbeyan, the New South Wales town on the shoulder of Canberra. G'day and con. Uh, my name's Alan. Uh, once upon a time, I studied pharmacy at Sydney Uni. I was also a Howie uh, in the early 2010s. And nowadays, I'm a pastor at Capitavate Presbyterian Church, where we started as a bunch of young guys and girls trying to reach other young guys and girls for Jesus. The EU's invitation to commit to less reached and less resourced places was front of mind as I graduated. And knowing how transferable and useful my skills as a teacher could be. I was invited to Queanbeyan by a family I knew who were keenly aware that there were very few Christians in our public high schools. I boarded with them for the first two years, which is a great encouragement because uh, moving to full-time work is really hard, uh, regardless of your gospel intentions. Um, if you are in paid work, uh, you need to learn how to do that job and it takes time. Um, I've been uh, teaching in one of those local public high schools since then, building relationships, particularly with staff, where I can share Jesus, uh, and for both colleagues and students aiming to demonstrate an integrity of life and work as a Christian, uh, although the opportunity for faith discussions with students is a little bit more limited. Um, I first came back to uh, Captivate uh, because they're going through a leadership crisis, actually. Uh, it's not what I thought I was going to do throughout Bible college. I did a lot of LRLR thinking, thinking I'd go Western Sydney or other parts of Australia. But there was a huge need in this church because their pastor had to step down because of moral failure. And um, they were gutted, they were devastated. Uh, but we also saw just a bunch of young guys and girls who wanted to keep making a splash for Jesus. They believed that church was everybody's business. We all have the gospel. They kept their Bibles open, kept praying for each other, kept making disciples. And we just thought, wow, this is a wonderful opportunity. Choosing to stay, particularly in public education, can be hard, particularly in seasons uh, where I've just really longed for a colleague just to pray with. Um, and Queen itself uh, has been... Um, a pretty gospel poor region with really low church attendance um, and not much outreach activity. And my relationship with church really changed moving here. I found it impossible to think about serving on top of teaching in that first year. Um, and a few years on, I now find myself in one of the most well-resourced um, church communities in Canberra, um, which is still challenging uh, because despite the number of full-time staff, there's still a great need, particularly for women uh, in leadership and discipleship pathways where I'm currently serving uh, with senior high school girls. I've also left teaching uh, full-time for a while to study theology. Uh, this has freed me up to meet with teenagers who uh, are on school timetables. Uh, there was a price to be paid. There's lots of pain, lots of processing, lots of grieving, lots of mourning, uh, but they also want to be motivated by the gospel, re-energized for the mission. Uh, so that's exactly what we did. One thing I've learned in nearly a decade, thinking through how to steward God's blessings with an eye to serving LRLR communities and churches, is that while continuity is invaluable, choices are not permanent. New opportunities arise, and it is a perpetually humbling blessing to be a part of God, using weak vessels uh, to bring his own glory. I hope and pray that Ancon continues to be a great challenge and a blessing to you all. How do we steward this opportunity? Well, ooh, what do we do with a bunch of young guys and girls who want to be on for Jesus? Well, 
my time at Sydney Uni was so helpful because, um, you know, in fact, we're about to run a mission uh, called um, Open House. We do it every year. And I ripped it straight off what I did as a student, as a Howie, you know, read Jesus. I'm sure Rowan still trots out those T-shirts and things like that. Um, but people just wanted to preach the gospel, share with their friends, invite their neighbours to church. And that's exactly what we do. Uh, gospel ministry in one sense is profoundly simple. We keep opening our Bibles and showing what God says. Uh, we keep praying for uh, the salvation and the sanctification of believers. Uh, and we do that in love and fellowship. Um, so that's what we've been doing. And it's served us really well. Uh, God has been faithful and we've grown. We've seen people come to faith. Uh, it's been incredible. Um, uh, in one sense, it is, it's been a huge sacrifice for me and my wife. Uh, we've really had to pour our lives out to kind of, uh, um, you know, keep putting Jesus in front of people and, and seeing the church turn around, seeing people's hearts turn around. Uh, and I'm always reminded of Paul's, uh, you know, encouragement in the middle of Philippians too, that as he's poured his life out for the sake of their faith, he is glad and he rejoices. In one sense, it's a sacrifice that doesn't, you know, it is a sacrifice, but it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. Um, but he's a real kicker because he says, come and be glad and rejoice with me too. So I love these people to bits. I really do. I love them so much. But what I love even more is when they know the love of Christ and they go and do the same. They do this exact same thing with the people that have since joined us and the people who are yet to join us. So yeah, it really is wonderful there. Great to see others who sat where you sit, who have gone out thinking about how they're going to serve Jesus, how they're going to play their part with the gifts God's given them to build the body of Christ so that the body of Christ might reach its fullness and they're doing it in different places and you, it was interesting to me how as the years go on it's not that you sort of make a whole bunch of decisions and then they're set you have to keep making those decisions all the time evaluating different gospel needs as they come up in front of you so I hope that framework is somewhat helpful for you we're going to wrap that this this section up here I'm just pointing out we talked about how was God's great power active in the body of Christ Two ways. First of all, by bringing you from spiritual death to spiritual life and seating you with Christ in the heavenly realms, that, that exercise of his power has already happened. The second, the second way that God's power is at work in us is by helping you to walk worthy of him. And you walk worthy of him in unity. You walk worthy of him in seeking to build the body of Christ and as he goes on the letter, he then adds, walk worthy of him by putting off old fleshly ways, which we talked about on Tuesday, putting to death the misdeeds of the body. You're no longer in the flesh, you're now in the spirit. And he then goes on and talks about also how, in section four, how we then can live that out, walk worthy of him in our households, in our families, which is what we spent time talking about yesterday. So hopefully that just gives you a bit of an overview of how you can track your way through that letter, seeing a great exercise of God's power that has already happened in your life and how God wants you to know that incomparably great power available for us who believe in being the body of Christ together. Now what we're going to do to try to put some um, concrete examples to that is I'm going to invite up two of our LRLR workers. Now just before they come on stage, I do need to just give you a bit of a warning. Um, these two people work in a secure location, so it's important that we not share their details or their names or their photos or any video online. So 
We've cut the live stream 